Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I'm Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. And I'm Doug McCullough with the Lone Star Policy Institute. Today, we have our first repeat guest, Razib Khan, who blogs at GNXP, uh, writes for National Review, other publications, and works for Insightome, which is a tech startup dealing in personal genomics, sort of what we're going to talk to about in a minute. However, before we get to that, I did want to do a shout out, or Doug, I think you should do a shout out for uh, our editor, because we now have an official editor for the Urbane Cowboys podcast. Yes, our, our sound engineer, Ray Ingenieri. So uh, we've been very grateful to have him uh, on the last few episodes, and he's done a fine job. Yeah, if we sound better, that's probably why. Congratulations to Ray, and if you like this program, be sure to subscribe on the various platforms, leave us a five-star rating and a review. Uh, I don't care if it's a good review, as long as it's a review, but the five-star thing I do care about. So now on with the show. So we're going to talk about something that a lot of folks may have heard about in passing, but not really that familiar with, uh, which is there was news, I guess, about two weeks ago now that a scientist in China had used something called CRISPR in order to genetically modify or edit some babies and and change their genetic code. There's a lot to unpack there. Maybe we could start with uh, an explanation. What exactly is CRISPR? So really, it's, I mean, it's kind of straightforward in a way. So I'm just going to give the high level of of what it is. What he used is called uh, the CRISPR-Cas9 system. And so CRISPR is basically a defense mechanism within bacteria to um, chop up viral genomes and whatnot. And it's really good at this excision. And so with CRISPR, what, what scientists do is they use it to excise parts of the genome that they want to get rid of. And then, um, you know, with the Cas9 is an enzyme that helps along with that. And there's something called guide. Um, there's basically guide sequences that you can attach to this, which tell you which part of the genome to target, right? Because you have 3 billion base pairs, you have all of these, you don't want to just go in there and do it willy nilly. The big thing is for CRISPR-Cas9, the system is it is cheap and easy to do. We're talking orders of magnitude cheaper and easier. And that is really the big revolution because there's other DNA technologies that go in and do these various edits, but they're either very expensive, they require a lot of resources, a lot of experience. And so those Those technologies were um, relatively restricted to labs that were very big, very well funded or corporate labs like, you know, Monsanto and all these companies. They had a lot of resources, uh, the old recombinant DNA technology and whatnot. But those were never going to be scalable for doing stuff like this. I mean, it was always possible that someone could try, but the failure rate would be so high and it would be so expensive the economics didn't work out. CRISPR is in part an economic story by making genetic engineering available to the masses. Okay, and so this, uh, so there's the scientist in China who I, I butcher his name, but it's like he Yan Kui. Yeah, or yeah I, I think it's like Ha Jan Kui or something. So ha Jan Kui. Just call him Ha, okay. right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so what did what did he do specifically? Yeah, yeah. So uh, there, basically, what he did, he. 
He recruited a bunch of people where the father, you know, the potential father, the putative father was HIV positive. And he, what he wanted to do was engineer, I mean, basically engineer human beings that have a resistance to HIV infection. So there's a, there's a gene in the human genome, um, CCR5, and there's a mutation called the Delta 32 mutation, which is very common in, um, very com- not very common, but it's common in Northern Europeans. Okay. About 10%, around 10% of Northern Europe. Europeans have the Delta 32 mutation. Of those 10%, about 1% have two copies just because random mating. Those people are pretty much resistant to infection. If you have one copy, your HIV progression is much lower. So it's not that rare to have a copy of the Delta 32 mutation. Um, my wife has it. One of my children, I mean, my son has it. Um, and then there's people with, with, with two copies of this mutation. We know that the mutation is not horrible in terms of what it does. It looks like the positive is the positive aspect of it is it gives you resistance to HIV. That gene is associated with um, a receptor for chemokines, which is part of the immune system. So it's an immune response locus, right? And um, so that's the upside. The downside is it looks like it might make you more vulnerable to certain other things, like say the flu, um, West Nile virus. And so it's, it's an upside downside. What I would say though is uh, there's hypotheses of why this gene became common in Northern Europe. The fact that the gene had an ancestral state, which is overwhelmingly dominant in most human populations, probably does suggest that it's good not to have this particular mutation in the grand scheme of things, even though the effect isn't that large. So in evolutionary processes, a lot of times really subtle selective effects are what's keeping the mutational frequency low. So you might not see it in an individual case, but um, if everyone got this mutation, they were genetically engineered for this mutation, and they were resistant to HIV, it probably would not be good. I suspect that there would be some sort of disease that would spread that, you know, mutants are susceptible to. So we want to get into some of the implications. I, I notice a, a lot of times when there are stories about biotechnology or uh, other things like that, the public reaction is a lot bigger than perhaps in the scientific community. Mm-hmm. Uh, the scientific community is maybe a little bit more chill about it. Yeah. Uh, and this time it, it seemed like, yeah, it was no. almost the reverse in that, you know, there was obviously this has gotten a lot of attention, uh, but it hasn't, it hadn't been like a nightly news thing or anything like that. Whereas several of the people that I know that work in genetics or other things like that, you know, it, it seems like this is a, this is a huge deal. So why is it that you think this is such a big deal? Yeah. Well, let me um back up really quickly. I do want to stipulate we are, I am pretty confident from talking to journalists. Um, so I talked to Antonio Regalado on my other po- on my podcast, The Insight. Um, if people want to check it out, The Insight. Um, he broke the story. And I actually asked him in relative detail, and I asked him off the record. I mean, he thinks this guy did something. Um, he did some CRISPR editing. There are still some people that are skeptical. So I do want to stipulate, we're not 100%. Yeah. yeah, we're like 90% sure. Okay. But stipulating that, there's all sorts of issues about did he do a good job? I Let's just like table that right now. Why are people freaking out? They're freaking out because there was there was no reason to do this except to become famous, okay? If you set that precedent and that becomes a norm in science, that's not very good, right? Scientists are regulated by their own norms and people are scared of science. Let's be frank about it. They're scared of nuclear weapons. They're scared of genetic engineering. They're scared of all sorts of things that are destabilizing in science, genetically mod- modified organisms. If scientists scientists decide to go wildcatting, right, using a Texas term, um, and do their own thing, they're going to justify the fear that the public has about science. Public is funding science, right? The public is 
for that, is paying for this stuff. And corporations don't want negative press. So, you know, there is a very individual self-interest here where researchers are terrified that this is going to have knock-on effects on them personally and on the way science is proceeding. Now, there are some people who also believe, and I think this is legitimate, this was not a very well-done job scientifically from the slides we've seen. It might have been a little bit botched. I Honestly, I don't think that there's probably going to be any major side effects for these children, but it's not up to the snuff for human trials. That is the norm. And so people are outraged for that reason as well, for these, for these, you know, girls, these twins that were born. And so most of, most of them, most of the attempts of the embryo editing uh, did not work. But these two twins, it looks like one of them at least might have worked. One of them might have been a mosaic. There's, again, there's like uncertainty on the details because it hasn't been published. So there's that. The final issue obviously is, um, you know, some people have ethical, have ethical, like moral problems with this sort of thing. To be entirely frank, very few scientists have those deep issues. If this genetic engineering process was 100% accurate, where there was no mutational side effects or anything like that, and it went through a general process, people would be relatively calm about it. It's just that, um, huh. I believe he pushed things forward about 10 years earlier than it should have gone. Mm-hmm. So there's a there's a certain sequence that people are expecting of how this is going to go down and how fast the technology because the technology only has been really been used in this process for 6 years. So there was going to do a lot of animal trials, do a lot of work in plants, all these other organisms where you don't care if they cause some issues, right? In humans, like there's no need to do it in infants in the germ line. So one key thing that I haven't mentioned is this is modifying the germ line so the the children of these of these um girls if they have children will also care the mutation. The really first target for genetic editing um, in human beings is almost, I mean, I believe there are some trials that are starting, is going to be in adults that have really bad diseases. So if you if you cause a problem in someone that has cystic fibrosis, to give an example, I mean, I think Duquesne muscular dystrophy is actually the first target. If you cause a problem in someone that has Duquesne, advanced Duquesne muscular dystrophy, I mean, ultimately, they're going to die soon. So um, you will, the risk is probably worth it. They're adults. They can consent. I mean, they're actually not all adults for Duquesne muscular. I mean, it, it's pretty bad, as we all know. But I think they usually make it to adulthood, last I checked. That was the, the whole sequence of like what was going to happen in the next two years. And then, you know, 10, 20 years a lot of these older researchers are going to be retired. It's just not their thing. They weren't going to have to deal with it. Honestly, I assume that some billionaire somewhere maybe would do something like this, but they would keep it under wraps. One reason I believe that Hud did do something is, I mean, he's at a re-education camp now, for all we know. Right. There, I mean, there's no reason just, to lie about it. It's not a sanctioned, you know, by the party. No, 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 no. He just, he just decided, he did it on the down low, and all of the things that he obviously did were in terms of not filing certain paperwork. He didn't want people to know. And he gives some weird reasons. Honestly, I think part of it is there is a megalomaniac, mad scientist aspect to this, yeah. which unfortunately fits the stereotype of the public. <laughs> yeah, you, you, you're sort of sounding a little bit like Jeff Goldblum from one of my least favorite movies, Jurassic Park. Your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think if they should. Doug, do you want to talk about the ethics? Well, no, I was, and I think you've kind of already alluded to this, as I was reading in uh, Singularity Hub, uh, the author was Tiffany Vora, and she was just talking about about the lack of transparency in the uh, in the in the trials and in the projects. So tell us a little bit about maybe the discrepancy between the way it would normally be done. You say this is ahead of schedule, but how would that mm-hmm. how would that work normally have been done versus what you know about the work as it was done? 
Yeah, I mean, as you know, um, in the United States and just in the developed world in general, um, drug trials on humans, um, you know, medical trials on humans go through like a long process of approval, of vetting, of review. There was an issue with um, gene therapy in the late 1990s where a, a kid died. And it was obviously the scientist was committing some hubris, um, a Duke researcher. That set that field back for a generation. It probably it probably is an overreaction by the government. So these gene therapy trials are under really, really like tight, tight regulation and scrutiny. They have to fulfill like a lot more. Um, I mean, I think they have like longer periods than pharmaceuticals, all these things. To some extent, it was overkill. But I mean, scientists, that's their prior um, knowledge of what happens if something messes up. Like people freak out and it shuts down the whole enterprise. It probably um, delayed gene therapy for a generation. Now, we now have a much better technology for doing gene therapy and genetic editing. So in a way, it's going to be a footnote in history, I believe, um, that um, the late 1990s fiasco, because the technology is so much better now anyway, so it wouldn't have mattered even if it was done right. I mean, that's what people are worried about. If you do this without any transparency and there's a problem, how are people going to react? They're going to say, well, you can't do this. You're going to shut it down. Now, ultimately, this is so cheap and easy. You're not going to be able to really shut it down unless you have world government. So to some extent, people, I I feel like I'm going to be entirely honest on this podcast. Um, (laughs) I I don't want to like, you know, throw some shade, but I feel like a lot of these prominent scientists that are saying there needs to be a scientific consensus. We don't live in 1999 or when a which was the genetic engineering conference in the 1970s. And there was like a couple of hundred people and they made the decision for the la- the you know the last 25 years of the 20 20th century and into the 21st century. We live in a world where there's a lot more economic development in a lot in many other places, and the science is cheap and it's effective. So just saying, oh well, there has to be a consensus. We have to come to a consensus. These are empty words. People need to figure out like how they're going to um, regulate it, restrict it, um, minimize the harm. Um, I feel like people need to get a little more realistic because this guy was able to do it without, frankly, that many resources. It's not like he's, I mean, he's kind of prominent, apparently, in China, and he has good credentials. But, you know, he doesn't have some enormous system behind him. He just did it on his own, which just shows how easy it is. I mean, I I do want to talk about some of the the broader ethical implications. And some of that, I guess, maybe depends on uh, not even where the technology is right now, but potentially, you know, what are the some of the things that it could be used to do, right? So, Obviously, one thing that you might use this for is, and you've been, you've alluded to this, you know, is uh, to try and eliminate or counteract certain genetic diseases, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, Men- yeah, Mendelian diseases. Right. So, yeah, I mean, basically, you know, about like ten percent of people, like this is a rough estimate. They have some sort of Mendelian issue. Sometimes it's for later in life. You know, in a small minority of cases, we know kids that have problems, like, you know, these are early in life. Through pre-implantation genetic screening, you know, carrier screening, all these things, you could do screening of sperm. There's all sorts of things you can do. We could probably get rid of these diseases just because, you know, those children will not be born if parents decide to select from another embryo, like these sorts of issues. With germline editing, you can target these large effect loci. So if a kid is going to have muscular dystrophy, Let's just use this as an example because that's a very, it's a horrible disease. The rationale for editing a child is big. Now, the issue with um, when, why you would do it at embryo stage versus why you would do it later is at embryo stage, it propagates throughout all the cells. And so you're totally cured because there's not that many cells, right? 
the issue the issue when you're grown when you're born and as like a multicellular organism is you know it's called the delivery problem which i don't know about because i'm not a biomedical engineer but the delivery problem is how do you get into the cells so if you have cystic fibrosis you don't need all of your lung tissue to be functioning you just need some of it probably but you need to get enough of it and so that's when you have like you know a lot of cells it's going to be an issue and so that's why you would target at the younger at the younger ages for these mendelian diseases i think in the 2020s um we're going to see work on mendelian disease in the tw- early 2020s adults and then later at the germline in terms of the ethical issue um you know as you say like this is this is an issue of, of morals in our society but i do have to say like we don't have a problem with in vitro fertilization do we like what i said you know what i said on um a blog post is um, as a society there are people right. who have problems with it they don't do it what i what i have said you know in public is like you know i've heard evangelical christians talk about how they thank god for the miracle of their baby because of assisted reproduction that is where we are as a society yeah and i i think you know if you were to talk about potential uses for this curing disease you know hereditary diseases or genetically influenced diseases or whatever would probably be the one that would that would get the most support what about for example, you know, something like from the film Gattaca, where you're trying to increase uh, intelligence or physical strength or beauty or other positive characteristics. May, you know, they may not, I guess one difference is some of these Mendelian diseases, there's a single gene or maybe yep. a couple genes that you could target. Whereas with something like intelligence, to the extent that there's a genetic component to that, it's it's spread out over many, many different genes, and we may mm-hmm. not understand how they interact. So would this not work for something like that then? Well, I mean, one of the issues is the technology is getting better, faster, cheaper, and more effective really quickly. So it was already it was it was already a great leap forward um, in 2012 when it was discovered. A lot of labs switched over from other technologies to this technology within months. I mean, they just they dumped 20 years of institutional knowledge and experience within the lab and tried to learn this technology is so much better. But it's getting better and better. So eventually, um, we, you know, we will have a very, very fine-grained tool. So a lot of things will be possible. With intelligence, I think one of the things that you will see is you are correct. There are there are hundreds and thousands of genes, genetic loci, variants that affect intelligence variation in the normal population. But at the bottom end, at the left left tail of the bell curve, there are actually people who have low intelligence because they have larger effect mutations. So I think the first thing you will see is the people at the bottom end and I'm not saying just Down syndrome. That's already happening, as you know. There are, but there are probably other um, issues at the lower end. Those people are going to not be born, or um, they will be probably fixed embryonically. And if the mutation is large, large enough effect, you could imagine even affecting adults. I mean, that's very speculative, but I mean, that's entirely possible. So um, I think that that's one thing. I do think I'm not worried about the complex traits issue because that's going to be a discussion in the 2030s, which maybe is really far or really near, depending on your perspective. I do think the technology will get good enough that some some people, some scientists that I know that are serious are very, very skeptical for various reasons, just because like, oh, it's going to be so difficult, you know, um, with targeting all of these positions and blah, blah, blah. And what are the side effects? And that's entirely correct but if you talk to them about genetic engineering in 2011 they would say well we you know like we could never do that it'd be just like so expensive you'd have to devote the resources of of like a whole university to do this on human right. and then in 2012 crispr was in, what crispr was discovered or invented as an engineering system and all of a sudden a last single laboratory could do it and so that's why i think scientists are not sometimes very good at predicting how realistic these sorts of things are going to be because they
they don't take into account 10, 15 years down the line, economies of scale and innovation, engineering innovation, not the basic science innovation could make this much more feasible. So I think, you know, you're going to have some billionaires that maybe are going to, you know, I'm not going to say any names, but maybe starts with an E, maybe also starts with a T, you know, there's some people that want to like, will roll the die on this. But, you know, most people are not going to do these sort of complex trade. I think it's going to be mostly health related, not complex trade. With complex traits, I mean, honestly, it's going to be pre-implantation genetic diagnosis that will probably be, which just means embryo screening, just brute forcing what we already have. You mentioned a billionaire with starting with an E. Uh, so Elon Musk recently was talking about uh, artificial intelligence and how the cyborgs were going to take over and we all have to be enhanced. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, uh, we humans mm-hmm. are going to be uh, like monkeys in a zoo on an island or something like that. So what about somebody like me? This is, I like us people being natural, all human. Are we uh, Are we going to end up in a zoo like Elon Musk is talking about if we if, if half the population or more of the population become cyborgs or have their genes edited? What's the future of us simple humans? Well, you know, I mean, look, the Amish have an okay life. <laughs> um, you know, seriously, though, I mean, like, so it's about values. I know, I know people in, um, you know, the singularity, the rationalist community in the Bay Area, you know, people that are funded by Elon, um, you know, like one of my friends was pretty much co-author of, of the Nick Bostrom's book that Elon loves. So those people are very scared and alarmist. And, you know, I don't think they're crazy. They're not crazy. You might think they're wrong, but people dismiss them as crazy. They're not crazy. They're just a little too hyper rational for a normie. I think like a lot of it is they will come back to the fact that is you need to program artificial general art, strong general artificial intelligence with value. Now, whether you think that that's ever going to happen, strong general artificial intelligence, it does come back to values. What are your values, right? Is it, I mean, you know, we tell our kids that what you look like doesn't matter in terms of your fundamental worth. Whatever our religious or non-religious views are, um, that's kind of an accepted thing in American society. On the other hand, when I was in graduate school, I I somehow managed to end up, I think I mentioned some previous podcast, managed to end up teaching a bioethics um, section. Which, you know, is a little strange, um, knowing me, because I'm definitely like very libertarian on this stuff. Uh, But um, if everybody could be, quote, good looking through some sort of genetic screening or process, would it really be bad if they were? Because, you know, people today, we are a lot better looking than people 100 years ago, just because of nutrition and public health and other things. Like life used to be really stressful um, in the past, if you look at the bones of people and how they grew. And it's not like that. Like today, like we're relatively, you know, healthy in the developed world compared to the way we were. And, you know, there are still people that are less healthy and people that are more healthy. I mean, but I mean, in a world where people don't have facial abnormalities, for example, like, we're talking about like, taking the tails off, there are people that have facial abnormalities. And they talk about going through life like that, and how they're just used to people staring at them and acting strangely. Now, the reality is, if you get to know someone, it doesn't matter what they look like. That is entirely correct. But um, in terms of their quality of life, just day to day walking down the street, you know, I mean, it's a problem. So um, I do think that we shouldn't dismiss offhand stuff like beauty, for example. I mean, intelligence, I think, is a little more confusing because um, smart people can be kind of crazy. I'm just going to say it. Um, I'm not I'm not sure if it's entirely good for everyone to have an IQ of 140 socially, but that's a science fiction Isaac, scenario. Isaac, Isaac Newton was a weird dude. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But I mean, if everyone's beautiful, it just looks like TV. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, uh, 
What, okay, so what about it, going back to the matter? Your know, values matter. It's all about the values. So, what about authoritarian regimes that might want genes for you know conformity or subservience uh, mm-hmm. or religiosity, depending on where you were? Yeah. Or you know homosexuality, right? If that that's got a genetic component, obviously some of this is speculative, right? You'd have to know what the genes were. Mm-hmm. Uh, or mm-hmm. have a, Guess anyway. Yeah, I think I think within a generation, honestly, if I had to bet, we we would have the technology where an authoritarian regime could do some crazy stuff. Would would could create, you know, let's say like let's say some like guys really into classical literature and wants to create, um, you know, Thebes sacred band or whatever of of gay super soldiers. <laughs> I mean, I think, I think honestly, yeah, it would probably be possible. I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility. So this again goes towards governance and and values of like you know. I mean, we've had nuclear weapons you know since the 1940s, and only one nation has used them. And so um, we need to figure out a system of of how this is going to get deployed. Um, this is a general issue that we have in a technological society. It's not just biology with how computers are used and how technology is used. You have the same issue you know, authoritarian regimes are already using the internet for cyber warfare. So how are we going to solve that problem? I mean, it's the same general mechanism. Uh, the technology is out there. Um, now, an alternative, um, I, I, I suspect you have a lot of nerds listening, so I'm just going to say it. We could have a we could have a Butlerian jihad. You know, we could just right. ban a lot of technology. Um, the ish, and like some people are saying that we should ban this. We need to ban genetically engineered embryos. Um, my issue is always like, yeah, but you have a nation called China, and they're not happy with what Hu did, but they have a much more open attitude towards bioengineering than people in the West do. That's just the way East Asia is for whatever reason. They have other issues like um, organ donation is a problem. They don't like to. Do Donate organs. Um, I think it has something to do with Buddhism. I don't remember, or like bodily integrity. Anyway, I'm not saying like it's a one size fits all, but when it comes to a lot of bioengineering, they look at a utilitarian cal- calculus. Whereas in the West, we have like you know maybe more I don't know deontological. I don't know how you want to say it, but basically um, there there are some like duties we have that don't have any relevance to some the greater good in in this domain. So I think we need to talk about regulation, international governance. The technology is cheap and easy, so I mean I. Honestly, like it's something we need to tackle now as soon as possible. Right. And I, I do think that, you know, with a lot of these issues, I mean, it would be it's sort of like if the United States were to say, OK, we're going to ban research into nuclear weapons circa 19, you know, 45, 44 or whatever. Right. That might have been able to work in the United States. But then the long term, is it really good to have the only research in nuclear weapons going on in places like the Soviet Union? Right. Yeah. Yeah, and, you know, I'm going to say like a, another science fiction analogy. Um, this is like even more nerdy than the Dune reference is um, S.M. Sterling has an alternate future history where there's basically a um, basically there's like the world is divided into two blocks. One of them is kind of centered around the United States and the New World and a few other places. And the other is mostly in Africa and U- Europe and Asia. And basically, um, this Afro-Asian block is ruled by a super race descended from Tories and Afrikaners. They're very authoritarian, and they're not as innovative as the American block, which is much better technology, but they have no ethic um, when it comes to biologicals. And so the two blocks are competing where one block is better at um, you know, technology like computing, while the other block is actually genetically, genetically engineering themselves to be Nietzschean supermen. 
Khan from Star Trek. Yes, right? exactly, exactly. Right. So, so the Dra- the Draca series, if anyone wants to look it up. So basically, they literally are genetically engineering themselves to be super geniuses that are extremely strong, and eventually, uh, the Draco actually win. <laughs> so it's not a it's not a happy ending, um, but that's just how it goes. Um, I think we need to figure out, like, yeah, how we're, how we're gonna like as a species figure this out. It's just like you know, anthropogenic climate change. We have some coordination problems. Right. I do, I I do think if like you say to the Chinese, for example, um, just to give because ultimately it's a this is going to be a Chinese issue from a Western perspective because yeah, in like twenty thirty years, other states could do something, but really, um, their GDP is going to be bigger than the United States in about ten years. They have a lot of scientists. Um, they're still like way behind us but they're not way way behind us um if they wanted to actually focus on this they could do something within the next five years that would be pretty impressive probably we need to we need to like get together with china and be like you know curing disease mendelian disease that's good you know making people healthier that's good but um allocating resources to creating a superhuman race might cause problems for the chinese state as well anyone who's read science fiction can like imagine what the ultimate scenarios are i mean i feel like i want to i want to say it like we're kind of in a brave new world now by the way uh there will be a count of all the different movie and science type references but it does remind me of something that gk chesterton old british catholic author he said about eugenics which is that you know if you did manage to somehow breed a race of beings that were superior to you the last thing they would do is take your orders about you know who to mate with right (laughs) you know so yeah um, yeah same thing with china if you if you start breeding a superior you know like descendants that are a lot smarter and stronger and you know all, all these different skills uh you know, they might not want you to be in charge anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is a science fiction. That's a science fiction scenario um, where it's like you create a uh, Homo superior and they just take over almost immediately because we're we're like children to them. Well, right. You know? they're, they're, they're the Magneto of uh, of, of yeah, China. yeah. And this is not. I mean, this is a weird conversation to have in a way because if if some government wanted to spend like an enormous like do a an Apollo type program, it's not implausible that in the next five years that some pretty freaky stuff could happen so we just need to figure out okay how do you motivate societies not to focus on this because ultimately i i really don't think that the um cost versus benefit just from a utilitarian not an ethical perspective is even worth it i think it's much more worth it to cure all those people that have Mendelian diseases in the world. If you've ever known someone with cystic fibrosis, muscular dystrophy, all of these issues, why not cure? I mean, like, why would you create a super race when our own race has so many problems? And I think that's a scientist's perspective. Like, because we understand what the what the trade-offs are. And so we're like, yeah, this is kind of like amazing. But what's even more amazing is curing the people that are sick. That's even more amazing. So you recently had an article in National Review um, reviewing Robert Plowman's The Blueprint. So simplify mm-hmm. that for a simple attorney like me. Did, does that finally resolve uh, questions about nature and nurture? And Nature and nurture. So Plowman's book is actually just reinforcing what behavior geneticists have known for almost 50 years now, which is the main thing that you as a parent can control is who you marry. Um, a lot of the other things which are environmental, you don't have any control over because your kids are going to do what they want to do. So for example, you know, a lot of parents in the 1950s were not happy that their kids were interested in rock and roll and tried to suppress it. It ultimately didn't matter, right? So children have their own culture, which is totally environmental. 
control, but it's not under your control. So what Plowman was saying in Nature versus Nurture is a lot of people think, oh, you know, I'm going to raise my kids to be a certain way. And like, that's fine. You can do that. What the science shows us is you can clamp, you can like constrain children until they're 18. And then once they're 18, they start doing their own thing. And over their lifetime, they basically end up where their genes would predict much more than any environmental predictor you have. But what I what I want to be clear here is a lot of times environment is extremely important in these genetic models. We just don't know what it is because it's not the parents, right? So when people think environment, they think, oh, parents make these choices. and But ultimately, it's not really – we don't know. There's all sorts of things happening in society, all sorts of random things. And so that's that's the upside of – I mean that's the main takeaway of Pullman's book. Like let me give you guys a concrete example. Um, what religion – you are as an adult is extremely strongly correlated with the religion that your parents are. Obviously, in the United States, it's not perfect, but it's a strong correlation, correct? And that is true for adopted children. They tend to be in the religion that they were raised in, more more or less, about half, right? Which is the average American. But what they have found is how often you go to church and how religious you are is not correlated with parents for adopted children, right? And so that's what I'm saying where it's like, you can you can have an effect on your children. So, you know, maybe you raise your kids Lutheran. They stay Lutheran, but how much they go to church might actually just have to do with their personality, which is genetic from you. Like, you can't force them to go to church every week or not go to church. I don't know, you know. Um, there's these subtleties where there are certain things you can control, and there's certain things the only control you have is the way you are and the way your spouse is. And so I think that's the key thing about nature that you have to understand. Who you decide to marry and have children with is the biggest choice you have in your life for how your children are going to turn out. Yeah. So, and this is, I think, bringing it back to the CRISPR discussion, I think this kind of highlights why this is such a big deal because, you know, in the past, there have been all sorts of utopian schemes to try and remake society and human beings and get rid of the family or get rid of, you know, create a totally egalitarian society or whatever, you know, the Soviet Union, get rid of property. And most of them have kind of floundered on the fact that you can't change human nature, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Mm-hmm. But in, in this case, you know, I mean, if you can if you can alter people's genetic code, maybe you can change human nature, right? Yeah, I'm um, the analogy that I like to use, and I, I used it like three years ago for an article for Genetic Society America uh, on their website, is um, humans have started to be able to read our genome with sequencing. So we can read. Now we do have the technology to, you know, do some writing. And so that is the next step in human evolution where we actually start potentially self-directing. Basically, I mean, it's really hard to predict 100 years into the future. You know, 100 years ago, H.G. Wells had all these ideas and some of them were right and some of them were wrong. And we're a lot more like we were 100 years ago that in some, you know, all the utopian fantasies didn't work out. But now that we have the technology to actually change our nature, that is going to be, it's good. It's hard for me to imagine that 100 years from now, we're not going to be, you know, split up into different quasi species, honestly, if, I, if like I'm going to be honest. The Morlocks and... Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people, I think most people will still be naturals, you know, but um, there's a lot of people that, I mean, like, you know, like, there's a whole culture of, like, body modification in the United States right now, 
just in the world, there are people, they just want to do stuff. And what if they want to get blue skin and the blues are just decided that all the non-blues are weird, you know, and they do germline editing. And so there's the blues, the blue people. I mean, why not? I mean, this is, it's kind of funny, right? It doesn't affect their nature in any way. But if you're a blue and you have offspring with a non-blue, I don't know, maybe it's splotchy. Like you don't want, you don't want to hang out with the non-blues. Like you, you like your colorful blues, you know, and then the reds, they probably will freak people out. I'm using skin color as an example because historically we've actually killed people over this issue and now we can actually genetically engineer all sorts of different skin colors soon probably okay so uh final question it's very important question do you think it would be possible to genetically modified people so that they are more likely to listen to the urbane cowboys podcast you know i guess like we got to find the 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 genetic markers for wryness (laughs) and a dry wit you know but yeah i mean i think i mean you gotta have like yeah like, like you know what like you should um write a grant yeah. to one of one of the coke foundations you're gonna look for the liberty genes <laughs> now so this is how you could this is how you could get some funding for unleashing it's called the liberty virus the liberty virus yeah yeah the only problem is if you take the non-aggression principle too far everybody just stays indoors <laughs> you know because they, they, they don't want to mistakenly run into someone so you could imagine a satiric i mean you could write a satirical like you know libertarian novel about like okay like there's a virus and now everyone's a libertarian and what's the outcome of that right right you know i think one thing one thing josiah that we need to um reflect on is we are diverse in our personalities and our intelligence and our looks and our health and all these things and i'm not super happy with some of the diversity like i just think the world would be better if nobody had duquesne muscular dystrophy but i am an extroverted person and um i do understand there's some benefit of having non-extroverted people because all of the extroverted people if everybody was extroverted um we might just all be exhausted at the end of the day and so i mean i think that's the thing that we need to um actually reflect on about diversity and what is just that we should accept that people are different here and then there's other things where now we have the technology we can get rid of Duquesne muscular dystrophy. Let's do it. That's my opinion. All right. Our guest today has been uh, Razib Khan. Thank you for joining us. 